Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Krasnick. My co-host, Jennifer Kalari, will be joining us shortly. And this is a show where we not only talk about mental health, but we practice some of the skills. We practice the tools. Because mental health is something that you do. A lot of people talk about it. Not as many people do it or have access to it. I'm one of those people. I am known as the Hebrew Hurricane of Shame. That's my mixed martial arts name. I fight myself. I beat myself up in an octagon daily. We're going to talk about some different things on today's show, but I do want to tell you we have a great guest. This guy is really a talented writer, great comedy writer, multi-Emmy winning writer for The Simpsons, Futurama, Mr. Show, all kinds of series, and that's Bill Odenkirk. And Bill is going to be joining us very shortly. You feel like everything is coming up on the show. There's nothing happening now, but everything is coming shortly. Hang on. Hang on to your hats. I want to talk about a couple things before I bring Jennifer in. And one of the things I want to do is emotional shout outs, because no matter what emotional state you're in, we're so happy to have you and we always welcome you to the show. Here are our emotional shout outs. If you've watched shows about the Old West to deal with your old feelings, welcome. If you find you've got a conspiracy theory about yourself and you're calling it Uanon, welcome. If you're counting your steps by avoiding conflict, welcome. If you're feeling so isolated that you're talking back to reruns of Star Trek, welcome. If you wish they would make a more comfortable mask where you could keep your keys, welcome. If you explode while putting together a peace sign puzzle, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by an old sponsor of ours, Mudament, the first antidepressant mouthwash. Mudament comes in new spearmint, peppermint, and rootin tootin wellbutrin. Why should you suffer from dry breath, from stale breath, if your mood elevator goes all the way to the top? Why should you pay for it? You shouldn't. Change your mood with Mudament. And now, this is what we're all here for. We have the ninja of the neocortex. We have the batwoman of brain hacks. <laughs> we have the high priestess of the hippocampus. None other than Jennifer Kalari is here. Jennifer, it's so great to hear you again. Hi, Ed. That was a new one. Batwoman yes. of the bad one of, of brain hacks. Yes. That's a new one. Thank yeah. you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to you today about a few different things. The power of pausing, mm -hmm. of actually using pausing, taking a pause, stepping back, giving yourself a little space, all of those kinds of things. The power of quiet and not filling in every second with noise. Or you can call it regrouping. Maybe that's a way to describe you know, this idea that we have to keep moving and how to decode the messages your feelings are sending you. Mm. I thought we could talk about any and all of those. I also, Bill and I were talking earlier about energy. People have energy a lot of times tied up in emotion mm -hmm. and how you can figure that out and kind of maybe loosen that up a little bit. So I'll talk about any and all of those. How do you get into 
helping yourself realize that you can actually stop at any time and take a pause and just and just take a breath? How do you get yourself mm. to do that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's funny because a lot of people don't even know that they can do that, <laughs> but you can. Now, we've talked a lot on the show about the structure of the brain, right? Like the frontal lobe, that's the CEO of the brain. That's the part of the brain that regulates and prioritizes and motivates. That's the part of the brain that will take the pause. Then there's the midbrain, which is the part that that's the safety security system in the brain that just freaks out, gets mad, panics, yells. It's interested in safety. It's an immediate adrenaline time sensitive response, whereas the frontal lobe is more of a, it's called an oxytocin based response where you're kind of looking at the big picture. It's practice. And you and I talk about this all the time. The first thing I would suggest, and I know it sounds a little crazy, but if you are the kind of person where taking a pause just doesn't seem possible, that you just, you fly off the handle, things come out of your mouth, you're just very reactive. And if you find yourself reacting to the world instead of responding to the world, that's a pretty tough space to be in and you're going to be dodging one crisis to the next. So I think the first thing is to actually use your imagination. We talk about this. Imagine yourself being in an argument with your spouse or a sibling or I don't know, somebody in the parking lot. Imagine yourself being really upset about it and then suddenly just being calm and just taking a moment, taking a breath, observing yourself and going, what am I doing? I don't need to be in this moment right now. Imagine yourself walking away and letting it go. The reason you do that is that's cognitive rehearsal. The midbrain cannot tell the difference between you actually doing that, remembering that you're doing that, or imagining that you're doing that. So if you rehearse that and you imagine that a few times in your brain, the next time you're in a moment like that, your brain is going to think you've done it before. And you're going to have a much better chance of just taking that breath and pausing and becoming the witness, like just witnessing yourself in that moment. So it's a pretty simple thing to do, and it works. Could be a way to start your day. Could be a way to end your day. Could be that those could be good spots for practicing or any time. Mm-hmm. And I assume that that helps you to decode, to actually listen to your feelings and become aware of your feelings. That's mm-hmm. kind of training for that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, all of this, it's like brain gym. When you're practicing these things by using your imagination first, you're basically building neural pathways in your brain. You're building muscle in order to do that in real life, in real time. You don't have to explain to anybody what the what the term physical fitness means, mm-hmm. but no one, you don't really bring up the term emotional fitness or mental fitness. That is not a term. And yeah. these are literally exercises that you can do. And the more you do them, the more you will have those skills available to you in the real world. And then when we talk about decoding emotion, it's interesting because we we think of ne- emotions in terms of negative and positive, right? Negative emotions, anger or sadness. But we need all of our emotions. They're all information. They're all incredibly important. Part of that decoding is not being afraid of those emotions and being able to kind of turn towards them and just accept that that's what you're feeling in this moment. Letting yourself feel those things, listen to the messages that your brain is sending you. Cause we usually just try to run away from them, blame somebody, get in a fight, buy something, smoke something, drink something, do anything that we can to get away from those negative feelings. But You know, if you had a friend that you had to get a very, very important emergency message to, you would text them. And if they didn't answer, you'd text them again. And if they didn't answer, you'd call them. And if they didn't answer, you'd go to their house. And then you'd bang on the door. Emotions are the same. If you don't listen, it will continuously send the message until you listen. And it becomes more and more intense as that momentum builds. I want everybody to join us for the new police detective series, Ed Krasnick, Emotional Cop. That kind of training is really important. And 
even just having the intention of it is almost enough. Mm-hmm. You almost don't even have to do it. You you just have the awareness that, you know, I have a choice. I can actually step back now. I have a choice. I can actually take a breath. I have a choice. I can actually pause. I have a choice. I can actually listen to the messages that are being, uh, you know, that are being sent. Mm-hmm. And I would say there are questions you can ask yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, self-questioning is a really big thing. And I don't mean questioning like, why am I in this business? Which is a question that I ask like every four seconds of myself. I don't have an answer for it. The questions like, what's going on with me right now? What do I need? Why am I feeling this way? Is this true? Is, is this true? true what I'm thinking and believing? Or noticing, hmm, this is a program running. This is an old program running from when I was a kid interesting that's running now. Anytime you just take that witness state and with curiosity, just look at what are, why am I feeling what I'm feeling? What, what's that about? Where's that coming from? Immediately stimulates the frontal lobe, which allows you to respond to your environment instead of react. It's amazing how we go in one direction with that, that reaction, that so much of it is reaction. And look, we're living in a world right now where survival, I mean, you can list I'm alive as a special skill on your resume. I mean, that is a special skill right now. You're not imagining any of this. So the other day, you know, there was a tsunami warning. It was a tsunami yeah. warning. And I looked outside yeah. my window and I realized, oh my God, we're right along the tsunami escape route. There's the sign on the corner of my street. And I'm like, oh, why is there a tsunami? Oh, there was a volcano underground hundreds of thousands of miles away. Yes. You don't yeah. think that we're all connected? You don't think that we're mm-hmm. all connected? When you get a tsunami warning from something that happened in in an island you've never heard of, you know that we're all connected. You need to be aware, you know, and I was just really grateful that, that there wasn't. And of course, I watched Poseidon Adventure, which is not a good movie to watch after no. a tsunami warning. No, no. maybe uh, maybe later, maybe later for that. We have choices to make. So whatever they are, you know, make them. And I had so much in my head, so much to say, and yet so little of memory of what I was going to say to you. These kinds of things are at your disposal at, at all times. I want to bring in Bill. I'm going to bring in uh, our guest. Well, this guy, I mean, I have so many stories about uh, him. He is a good friend, an actual friend. He's a great writer, multi-Emmy award-winning writer for shows like The Simpsons, Futurama, Mr. Show, now Disenchantment. He's here with him. I'm glad he's with us today. And that's Bill Odenkirk. Bill, you're the first guest who actually said, why don't I mute my mic so I don't disturb you guys while you're on, on the air? And just for that, you're getting a big check. A check Thank is coming. you. Thank you. I need that. <laughs> He had the sound off too, so I wasn't listening to anything that was said. That's exactly, <laughs> and that's what we we ask. We ask. I want to enjoy this listens. later when I listen to it. Yeah, you'll have fun later. I'm glad that you took the took the initiative to turn mm-hmm. it down. We've talked before a lot of times, and I find it really funny. We were talking about being able to remember people's names, mm-hmm. and I sometimes can't remember, and I'm ashamed, and so I don't tell the truth, and I say, "Hey." And I do a lot of that. How are you? Yeah. But you actually don't remember people's names, but mm-hmm. there's a different reasoning behind. You don't remember people's names because you think that they will never remember you. And why would they want to? That is a, I guess it's revealing about me or what, how I perceive other people per- thinking of me. 
I just feel like it's not that important to them. So why is it important <laughs> to me? You uh, immediately assume that, though. I like how you assume that. I, I do. I, I think there's also another thing going on here, which is my brain likes to leave me out on a cliff or whatever. So I'll mention something, a movie or a book, person I met, and I cannot remember their name in, in the vital moment when I'm supposed <laughs> to tell people. Yet, Yes, I met Terry Jones, for example, from <laughs> Monty Python. It was a great story I had, and I, I remember t- trying to tell my brother it, and I could not. The name just would not come to me, and, and I knew it was my brain just going up. I'm going to fuck with fuck with you and abandon you at this very crucial moment in your story and that happens a lot i think there's certain people too when i'm talking to them i'm more nervous about getting things right for example right now when i'm speaking on this your podcast and sure my brain goes nope not helping you uh you're gonna fuck up and i'm gonna help you by closing all the doors and access to your memory well, you have a, you have a really interesting have relationship with your brain. I have yeah. an adversarial ra- relationship with my own brain. Yes. Yeah. So we don't get along. No. Think of a lobotomy. Not on speaking terms uh, with with each other. Seeing no. other people. Yeah. Really. It's, when I'm casual and relaxed, then things sort of work better. This self sabotage thing goes on, but it's yeah. also true that I have a perception of other people, especially in the business where I go, this person could care less than meeting me. Maybe it's a reflection of how I care about them, too, that I refuse <laughs> to remember their name. You don't yeah. want to remember them, and you don't want anybody to remember you, and yeah, you keep so, it clean that know. way. I don't yeah. know. It's, it's a, is it a bitterness thing? I don't think so. I think it's just, I, I just feel like I'm small potatoes in the world. This story is is amazing, and very quickly, I met Bill like very early on when he first came to L.A. Yeah, 1995. I came out here after finishing my degree at University of Chicago and came out to write comedy. Well, you I were. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you don't remember who, my name. I used to do a show in a bookstore where I was in my robe and pajamas. And the idea was I was I was an agoraphobic talk show host. I didn't want to come out of my house, but thank you for coming in. And it was like a little town hall variety show. And so one of the guests on my show was Bob Odenkirk, Bill's brother. Bob comes on. He introduces me to Bill. He says, this is my brother, Bill. And he's, you know, he's new in town. I want to introduce him to everybody. And I met Bill and he had that look on his face like, you know, I just landed in L.A. and I don't know where I am, Mm -hmm. which is the look everybody has when they come here. It's like, you don't know where you are. You don't know why there are freeways and you don't know what these people are doing. Look. It looks like a scene from Annie Hall, like people are dressed like space people. You don't you don't understand it. Bill's there at the show. And I invited a friend of mine who I knew from San Francisco, Naomi. And Naomi came to the show just to see the show. She never met Bob before. You never met Bill before. Naomi comes to the show. We do it. It goes well. We go out for coffee next door. And she looks at me. She says, Eddie, I'm going to marry that guy. She's talking about Bob Odenkirk. They got married. Yes. She'd never met him. They'd happily married. So your show brought them together. And I'm still in my pajamas. (laughs) So that tells you how to live. That tells you what to know what you want in life. It's really interesting to me that you, you know, you and Bob basically running show business now, basically both of you. No, no, no. We, we, uh, you know, we're, we're actually starting a project together with David Cross soon here. When I first moved out here in 95, I worked with Bob on Mr. Show, 
which I'm, I hope people remember. Bob and David were just genius and are geniuses. They continue to be. I was excited to be on that. And it was a, you know, it was a huge boost for my career because every meeting I took, you know, all the executives and everybody, at least in Hollywood, knew the show and really revered it. A great experience to work with just some real young talent that was like people like Paul F. Tompkins and Brian Posehn and uh, yeah. others, Dino Stamatopoulos. Sure. I guess I'm calling them young talent. They, they'd they been around for a while, but they they were relatively new to L.A., but they were just brilliant stand-ups and brilliant writers. It was so exciting, and I was really lucky to get that gig. Subsequently, Bob and I didn't really work together after Mr. Show. I went my way to Futurama a couple years, then to Simpsons for like 16 years. Uh, uh-huh. Disenchantment now. I'm, I'm working on Disenchantment. I've worked on some mm-hmm. other shows as well. We've come around to sort of working together again here on on a project we're going to get launched. And that's fantastic. That's, that's really that's... exciting. You know, it was good because we I think we both needed some distance, and it's hard to work with family sometimes. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Civil wars are the worst, <laughs> right? <laughs> For whatever reason, I guess yeah. you hate people more because you so want them to you so want them to be like you and to be and to like you, <laughs> and yeah. when they don't. You know, it's harder when it's somebody closer to you. I think it's been really great for us to get some distance and it's helped our relationship as people really happy about. It's so great. Yeah. Distance yeah. Is, a, is a good thing. Everybody needs their own their own sense of space and their own development and, you know, whatever they need. And and I wonder, you know, like you are a guy, you know, you definitely you have such a great comedic brain, but you also do have a brain that really and this is true of a lot of really great people in comedy they have a brain that really goes to the negative oh like, yeah really goes like like yeah. the immediate the immediate well, thought is this is not going well yeah i i think i have a, a very negative outlook on on life despite the fact that you know it has been pretty good to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that's i'm doing, so I'm doing all right and and i <laughs> yeah. have no reason reason to complain i've had some career ups and downs uh which have been hard but you know everyone has as their ups and their downs. I think that like a lot of people in comedy, maybe you'll agree with this. I, at least I, it's an old observation. So, but I'll make it again. I'm going to do it here. I think there's a lot of anger, a lot of my comedy and a lot of people I know who were great, brilliant comics have a lot of anger issues. I also have other emotions like not anger. Um, that's my other emotion. <laughs> um, so you have anger and not anger. Yeah. I mean, I span, yeah. I span the two. I don't know why that contributes to, at least in the the people I've worked with, not, and not all of them. Some of them are very gregarious, happy, happy-go-lucky people. The more interesting writers and uh, comedic people that I I know seem to, there's a well of almost rage <laughs> in some cases. I wouldn't <laughs> say that. That's, that's your autobiography. The title is A Well of Rage. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't <laughs> say that in my, my case. And I've gotten less angry over time thank goodness for everyone around us and for <laughs> around me you have that same sense too ed because it's again it's something that i've i've seen with a lot of certainly stand-ups do you perceive that as well or is that just something yeah no no group of people i i, I associate I mean, with? I mean i perceive a dual world and the dual world is outwardly i'm a certain way but what i'm saying to myself is actually very different Mm-hmm. And so there's a real different thing going on, and it's 
the the inner life and the outer life are really the messages are really two completely different messages. Yeah. Like it's rare that I'm telling myself everything's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm okay. In the midst of other people, I really do have trouble. And it's a challenge for me to hold my own when I, when somebody else has a differing opinion or a differing state of emotion. Uh huh. Like I go with them. Like whatever they are you, doing, you, I go with you them. You make yourself amenable to them, is what you're sure, saying. Sure, sure. Right. Well, I do sure. the other thing, which is you're an emotional chameleon. Yes. Yeah. Whereas yeah, I'm, fu- I'm like fuck you. I want, I want you to conform to what I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, and I'm not and sure which one I like better. I think I'm, I like I'm yours open better. Other people's opinions, certainly, but yeah. I feel like I think, especially with politics and whatnot, I, I have no capacity for understanding at at, at some point. Yeah, well, I became a comedian, but it really, Jennifer's right. I, I'm really a chameleon, uh-huh. so I should be a stand-up chameleon. You're the comedian, uh, yeah. David Bowie. Yes, <laughs> I am. I'm painting my head. Yes, I have chame- I can blend in to whatever it is. No, it's like holding your own. It's like a big thing and realizing things like, hey, I'm not my feelings. Like it took mm-hmm. me a long time to realize that, you know, and yeah. to be aware of that. Well, as a kid, I wasn't aware of that. And I really felt like I was in trouble most of the time because I wasn't a good person because I had feelings. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, I walked around for like two years of high school with a headache because I felt, <laughs> I really did because I felt like, oh my God, wow. I'm such a bad person because I have feelings. Yeah. Like I don't understand them. So I go to the movies. And I just, you know, I'd sit through three screenings of Ice Castles. I didn't mm-hmm. care what the movie was. I just had to get in there and, and you know, the lights go down, the feelings come up, and you don't have to explain yourself. What you so, and you Jennifer know, were talking about uh, is something I think uh, only I've become dimly aware of recently uh, because I, I can't stand myself anymore. <laughs> um, uh what, it, I like it, the way you say it. You put it so earthy. Well, I just I've <laughs> yeah. tried. I've tried to have understanding for myself and tried to endure the way I've been. But I feel like that I I need to stop and perceive myself from like outside my life and go, mm-hmm. okay, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> Why is he <laughs> feeling this way? And not just observe like, oh, he, I'm feeling X, Y, or Z. Usually anger. Why is that happening? Is it just curious? Is, yeah. is it? Yeah, it's like standing outside watching it on a stage or something. Jennifer, uh, take it take it away, Jennifer. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say what, that's so important what Bill's saying, but and it's important not to have judgment. Like it doesn't mean you say to yourself, "Why are you doing this?" and "Why yes. are you why are you feeling this way again?" It's not a, it's not an opportunity to beat yourself up. It, it's more sort of a neutral curiosity like oh well well that's a hard attitude for me to strike. I mean, I'm just <laughs> the the distance is as far as I can go right now, which is go stand outside what's happening to me immediately to be generous or to be, as you say, Jennifer, I guess, uh, non-judgmental mm-hmm. is hard. Um, it is. It's it, like, yeah, that's just stupid what you're doing or the way you're right. feeling is yeah. idiotic. Well, and, Stop and, that. Yeah. And that's why I point that out because so many people do that to themselves. They treat themselves in ways they really actually wouldn't t- treat other people. Yeah, uh, much meaner to themselves than to others. And so the start is at least try a little bit. Like if you can even just soften it a little bit to yourself mm-hmm. and just have a little more compassion. Self-compassion is actually a really important thing. Yeah. Um, and and emotions are, it's so interesting because emotions are just information. Mm-hmm. That's all they are. And certain emotions will trip off the midbrain, the part of our brain that panics. And certain will, you know, others will keep the frontal lobe on. 
But really, it's you got to think of emotions like your internal GPS system. If you're yeah. feeling angry or you're feeling nervous or you're feeling jealous or you're feeling upset, it's it's actually not necessarily the thing that's happening that's making you upset. It's the disconnect between the best part of you and the worst part of you that's causing yeah. you to feel so terrible. It's like you're out of alignment with what you know deep down is right. So that's why when somebody says something to you that you know they're mad at you and they're right, you get mad at them. That's so mean. Really, mm-hmm. what's what's happening is it's a mirror. They're they're saying what we already know about ourselves, yeah. and we don't want to well, hear it. I wanted to ask you, Jennifer. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're a therapist, I believe. Mm-hmm. Is that yep. correct? Yep. Okay. Why is it so hard for a person to therapize themselves? If that's a mm-hmm. verb, it is. <laughs> because, we'll make it fun. I mean, the closest I ever come to doing that, and I mean this sincerely, I I, I feel like it's really helped me enormously. Is after a long period of agonizing over issue X, Y, or Z, or impulse X, Y, or Z, I finally start writing down things I've thought about it and mm-hmm. conclusions. Mm-hmm. And when I do, it really settles me down enormously. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it is a, definitely a form of therapy, uh, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really, <laughs> you can't really solve your problems that way. But it, it definitely, uh, to anyone who's listening to this, uh, writing down, not just how you're feeling, but like conclusions you've yeah, had about it is really valuable. I think right. it, at a baseline, what it does for me is it says to my brain, to my whole psycho self-talk babble that's mm-hmm. going constantly like a freight train. It says, okay, these things that you've thought about or considered, you don't need to work, hold them in your head. Yeah. They're written down. You can go back and they're read them, down. which is very yep. valuable but you know they're somewhere and you don't need to sustain them like a juggling balls in the air. They're they're self-juggling. Yeah, Self-juggling. Brain juggling. That really helps anxiety, right? Because you feel, your brain feels like you have to hold it and you have to Mm -hmm. constantly stay aware of it and stay paying attention to it. And it's exhausting because you just end up with more and more in your head to juggle. I lose so much weight that way. It's It's my only form of exercise. It's well, aerobic the, for you. Yeah. The other thing you said, Bill, which is interesting, is you'll answer yourself, right? Like you'll give some, you'll you'll comment back yeah. in, the, in the writing. And what you're doing there is you're actually using the witness part of yourself. You're now observing mm-hmm. yourself. You're stepping out of the moment and you're actually, and usually in those moments, you're tapping into your inner, it sounds so corny, but literally your inner wisdom, your mm-hmm. the, the highest part of yourself that actually knows what to do. It's your ego that gets in the way. And so- yeah. The reason it's hard to to therapize yourself is we, and once you start to realize that this is actually the case, we're just basically running programs. There's something called implicit memories, which are memories that are literally installed in your brain prior to the age of seven. So a seven-year-old, before the age of seven, the brain has no ability to really store long-term memories anywhere. That's why you can't remember very much about being little. Mm-hmm. Around six or seven, your brain starts to build the part of its brain that can hold long-term memories, which is why you have more memories at around the age of seven or eight that are more detailed. And so prior to that, anything that's happened to you that was an emotionally charged, upsetting, exciting, traumatic, literally gets embossed. It gets like tattooed mm-hmm. on your soul. And so these, a lot of the things that bother us and upset us and trigger us are these programs that were installed. We're running around, you know, with an operating system of a seven-year-old. And the cool part about this is you can change the program. You don't have to run the program. You can actually step Yeah, but it's hard outside. to figure out what that program is. It, I mean, it's, it so, is. It, it's it is. so hidden and subtle yeah. inside of you that 
Yeah. But, uh, but just well, by naming it, just by saying program. Yeah. But, yeah. but building, program is you don't always know, you don't always know what the program is. And usually if you, if you sort of get upset about the same things over and over again, if, if it distills down to a certain theme, which is usually people take advantage of me or nobody appreciates me or no one cares who I am, or I never get noticed, or we all sort of have different theme songs. But usually when you have a fight with your spouse or your sibling or anybody, it's usually the theme, it's the same fight. It's just maybe mm-hmm. about different things. <laughs> it's the yeah. same fight right. over and over. And that's your program usually. That's yeah. emotional theme songs. And that's, yeah. we have emotional theme song week. And that's why my theme song is Sanford and Son. And it's not a good thing. It's not a theme you want to hear over and over again, but it's just as painful. So, so witness protection, witness protection program. That's the problem with the programming. But that's great, Bill, because, you know, just the fact that it's outside of you and that you're writing anything down. And the other thing is emotions and thoughts, feelings and thoughts. It's a two way conversation. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever taught us that we can talk back to it. Yes. Well, it's a two way. This is my my point, too, is that uh, what I think what Jennifer was more than alluding to strongly suggesting is that it's there's an analysis portion too. whatever you write down. It's not just yes. I'm feeling X, Y, or Z when X, Y, or A, B, or C happened. It's like, I felt this way, but also what is it that's leading me there? You know, and, mm-hmm. and how do I manage this? Some sort of wisdom, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is the best way to put it. Insight mm-hmm. into it as opposed to just yeah. simply belly aching. And, um, and anger is a misunderstood emotion. We think there's is. something wrong with us uh, when we feel that emotion. And, oh, uh, I always think I'm right. No, I'm right when I'm angry. Yeah. Ah, okay, that's <laughs> a different thing. I'm right. right. Angry. Yes. I'm right. Well, They're wrong. Here's yeah. what's interesting about emotion. We really, I mean, we have varied emotions, but essentially we only have two emotions, love and fear. So anger mm-hmm. and jealousy and bitterness and cheating and all of that, it's all fear. It's all fear. It's fight or flight. So it's it's all fear-based. And, and anger is actually a self-preservatory emotion. It loves you. It wants to save you. It wants to keep you safe. It wants to protect you. It thinks that the mm. thing in front of you is dangerous. It doesn't know it's the person who stole your parking spot. Mm-hmm. It's literally this incredible part of us that wants to keep us alive. And so sometimes just taking a moment when your anger sort of rises up and actually, it sounds so silly, but like, take a second and almost thank it. Like, thank you for having my back. Thank you for coming <laughs> out swinging. I really appreciate you. But this is not life threatening. Yeah. This is not, I don't need you right here, but thank you for showing up. And here's what's interesting. You will metabolize it that way. You will actually alchemize it. It's so interesting by feeling the feeling, acknowledging the feeling, thanking the feeling, it will dissipate. Mm-hmm. And we do the opposite. We usually feed it or feel or we go tell people, can you believe that? Look what this yeah. person just said. And we live it over. And the really interesting thing about anger is you can only truly be angry for 90 seconds. That's it. 90 seconds. That's how long your brain has to be angry to run away or fight back or whatever. After that, it's a choice because you you, you relive it. Unbelievable. You mean like, when you say that, because uh, yep. I feel like I've gotten a few days of anger. <laughs> Okay, but here's what you're doing. Um, what you're doing you're, is you're reliving it. You're yeah, telling the you're, story. Yeah, what you're saying, if I could maybe recast it, is just you're saying that in terms of like not being in control of it or being even aware mm-hmm. of it, it's just it's taken you over. 
Yeah. 90 seconds. Yeah. After that, you retell the story or you yeah, think it all about in your head or you're in the shower having a fight. You're, you're telling it over yeah. and over again. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. the same story told yeah. a million times. And now you get angry again for another 90 seconds and another right. 90 seconds and another 90 seconds. And then your immune system downgrades. And like a lot of things happen in your body when you're angry. Anger is meant to be a short term emotion that yeah. you kind of let go after and being angry at someone for, you know, I can't remember who said this quote. It's like my favorite quote about anger that being mad at other people, being angry at someone else is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. Right. Yep. Mm. That's hard to fit on a bumper sticker. That's not as good <laughs> as keep calm and carry on. But, but listen, healthy aggression and healthy anger is that short term is fine. It's a, it's, a, it's how we regulate. It's how we discharge. When you feel that like start to panic thing, and mm-hmm. you're anxious, you can actually turn and say, hey, I get you. You think I'm in danger. Wow, that's really great. You're doing your job. I'm actually fine. Yeah. I'm okay. I've got This it. is Thanks. not life-threatening. I'm not in immediate danger. Not in danger. Then, yeah, I'm, always just, fa- I'm always fascinated to bring it back to me again. Uh, <laughs> right, of course. I love yeah. it. Why not? Hello? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm always fascinated, I, I, and I, it's my perception of other people, but there are, there are people, and they, I would counter what i just said there are people especially like in in comedy that i've met who just seem to never get angry who mm-hmm. are like no matter what happens to them they're so aloof like not aloof is not it but it's just they're so they're just they're chill yeah, yeah even it's yeah. just like okay whatever you're angry at me whatever i'm gonna go have yeah. a sandwich yeah. <laughs> i'm so angry at those people i just <laughs> I'm, it's fascinating to me i really admire the people yeah. like that but i think that's like an ingrained thing from your baseline I th- honestly i think a lot of that is temperament because you can see that in kids sometimes there's mm-hmm. some kids that are just freaking out because they don't get something and another yeah. kid's like eh, whatever a lot of it is temperament and but there are people who work very hard at it who've worked mm-hmm. for years and years and years to control their anger so their anger doesn't control them anger yeah. in and of itself is not good or bad what you want to be able to do is control it so it's mm-hmm. not getting in the way you're not in your own way Talk a little bit about the writer's room. You're a writer hmm. on a staff. Yeah. You're on The Simpsons. You're on you're in Futurama. You're on Disenchantment. You're on all the Mr. Show. Mm-hmm. And that feeling, I don't know if anybody who hasn't done that can can actually like what you'd liken it to. I... It's kind of like being a continuous bar mitzvah. I think. <laughs> it's a it? continuous bar I, mitzvah. I couldn't comment on that, not given yeah. my background. I don't have any frame of reference that, that I could attest to that. I don't know. I uh, I love being in the writers' rooms. I I think it's it's just a delight. You're with the funniest people who are paid a lot of money <laughs> to be as yeah. funny as they can all day long. They want to make you laugh uh, genuinely. They want to make everybody around them laugh all all the time. It's one of the most delightful ways to spend your your life. Really, it is. I I've mm-hmm. loved it. The Simpsons was great. Futurama. I was working with people. Some of those brilliant people I've ever worked with, and I, w- I went to University of Chicago, I had a PhD from that institution. There were three other PhDs on staff at Futurama, uh, all comedy writers uh, <laughs> in wow. science. They were in science or, or you know, computer science. Hilarious, brilliant, and just a delight to be around. So I don't feel like there's there's any pressure. If there's any pressure, it's like this very pleasant. Like, hey, try to make another joke or <laughs> try to make him laugh. Yeah. Or he's right. always hard to make laugh. Uh, I, I got him to laugh today. That was awesome. Or you got a joke in the script or whatever. You know, that what you're right. doing, your job. Um, occasionally, you concern yourself with that as well. I, I remember Mr. Show was, 
I would not say the exception, but we were we were all really desperately trying to get material on that show. Of course, that was a, a sketch comedy show. Your writing and your pitches and your con- concepts are much more attached to what gets on on the air, right? You, there's more of an account, like what did you get on the show, as opposed to like The Simpsons or Futurama or any any number of these shows where it's like, yeah, you know, I wrote the show, but it was rewritten extensively, and I pitched a bunch of jokes, and a lot of them didn't get in. It's a it's a real genuine group effort, and every show is, so you don't feel like that deep ownership and that that sense of a scoreboard like I did at Mr. Show, where it's like you're always trying to get material on because it's it's your name kind of. I don't know you're talking about the sense. best shows in the world, though. You're talking. I mean, Mr. Show was a was a creative. I mean, such a creative, it brilliant was. minds. It but was a developing it. show, you're all young, right mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. So now you go, you come into the Simpsons, and you're coming into a pretty, you know, a very well established. Yeah kind of place and when you're coming into futurama even though it may have been a newer show when you started and a new show you're still coming in you know you got three phds you got people sitting or they they don't have a similar kind of insecurity that you would have and and not all shows are like that i would Mm -hmm. say most are not futurama was was i was before the simpsons it was just a, I was just a really welcoming atmosphere. You know, we were all people of various, as I said, various backgrounds. Some of the people, some of the people had just left, literally left their science background, science uh, careers to come and work there. And then subsequently continued on in comedy writing. And then there was one, one of the guys had been a lawyer, lots of lawyers in writing, by the way, I've met a lot of them, but yeah, people come to it from all kinds of different backgrounds. I love the intellectual challenge of it. I love the people. And so the, the, the writer's rooms, ex- with the exception of Mr. Show, which, as I said, for me, was more of a was a more of a tense atmosphere because I was so desperate to prove myself. And I think everyone on that show was desperate to prove mm-hmm. themselves with a lot of very good competition. You know, re- Bob and David alone were just, you know, brilliant. Great group. It was a. It was it was not a hippy dippy atmosphere there. People mm-hmm. might have perceived it <laughs> as such. Watching mm-hmm. that show, it was a very serious atmosphere on that show. At least from my my perspective. Still, I loved all those people, and it was great uh, to be yeah. on it. Well, the community of it, there's nothing like it. There's not the comedy community is a very strong community with stand up. It is, but with writers in a writers room, there's no there's no feeling like that. It really is family. It really yeah. is a feeling of family and, and a community. You, you have to, in a, on a regular show like a like a Simpsons or the Futurama or you know, imagine sitcoms or whatever, you can't have a lot of ownership for the shows that you write. You have to be very open to other people's interpretation. This is very healthy, I think, in most cases, because I think generally the the rooms really do a fantastic job of making your material much better and oftentimes very different from what you wrote. Mm-hmm. That's and, the true uh, meaning of collaborative right there. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Right. There's yeah. no there's no room for people who are, are difficult about the shows that they write. In, in right. And you're not going to fight. Will you fight for jokes? No, no mm-hmm. one does. No mm-hmm. one does. I, I, it, it's extremely rare. They just, you know, even good ones, even ones that you loved, you got to stand back and go, okay, I have my, my draft is, exists. I was proud of it or happy with what I did. I got to go with the, the general group head of, mm-hmm. of this show. 
again, most of the time, really, you, you end up with something that's better. Sometimes you don't. And I won't highlight particular shows, but sometimes I went, wow, you know, the show I had written was a lot more coherent. This is a bit of a, a loose mess now. Comedy is a little bit more forgiving about story, I think, than like a drama, where if you mm-hmm. really screw up the story, that's it. Comedy is harder because people want a good story and they want the jokes all the time. If you've got really good jokes, which you, I like on The Simpsons, we had brilliant joke writers and whatnot and, and bits, it can compensate for a, a weak story. So it's a bit of a crutch sometimes. Self-care and comedy is a really interesting thing because it's not something that a lot of us are, are sort of geared towards being about what comes out and mm-hmm. not a lot about what goes in or what is mm-hmm. being said in. So, mm-hmm. so it's kind of like a duality. Uh, and I love using the word duality. It makes me feel very <laughs> jazzy. Um, but, these yeah. are, this is all very vague to me. What is this? Uh, going yeah. in and out what am i what yeah am I, it's jazzy where am I putting something no it's jazzy it's jazzy okay. it's 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 like the feeling of smiling on the outside but when you but what's going on inside is very different it doesn't uh-huh. match yeah. so i've had that a lot as a stand-up where i come out and i'm performing mm-hmm. but what's going on inside has nothing whatsoever to do with that huh. um there's really different stuff going on inside now once i get going it matches but okay. often it's like you know, and self-care is very, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that, that goes along. Like, I think you, I think you have a lot of healthy things that you do, like the writing, writing it out, and also, you know, paying attention to yourself in a different way, maybe. I'm like the kind of person who I'll be, they'll be calling my name to go on stage and introducing me, and I'll be listening to somebody tell me about their cat. Yes. I won't say I have to go on stage in a few minutes. You're not focusing uh, in advance. No, okay. no, I'm I'm taking care of them uh-huh. uh, because I want to make sure that they feel good. It's not oh, wow, important okay. that they just called my name <laughs> on stage, <laughs> and I'm backing out like the like if I were a Batman villain, I'd be the backpedaler would be mm-hmm. my name. <laughs> so I'm backpedaling. There's so much more that I want to talk about, but I I think we're going to wrap up. But Jennifer, I just want to go back to you. Self-care, you know, is something that you can always do and -hmm. it doesn't matter how well you do it. Yeah. You just have to try. Well, the hard part is a lot of people think they don't deserve it. Like they don't like themselves very much. So even just a little bit, I think is really, really important. Really thinking about what are you spending your time watching, reading, how much time are you spending on the news? How many conversations are you in where you're just complaining and ranting? Like emotional hygiene is actually a real thing. It's okay to vent and get things out, but you want to have space. And we started out the, the hour kind of talking about pausing, taking a break, turn your phone off. Don't make a lunch date with someone who you know, who you know is just going to complain for the whole hour. Take a few minutes and step out if somebody's a lot in a moment. It's really okay to take that pause and to take care of yourself. And especially if you have toxic people in your life, like it's okay to cut some of those people out of your life or at least limit your time with them. So you can have that emotional hygiene and and really don't wake up in the morning and turn your phone on and go straight to the news. Do not do that. Get up and think of five things you're grateful for. Really sit there and think about it or think of five people that you really love and imagine looking into their eyes Get up, walk around, then go to your phone. But don't open your eyes and look at the news. Those are pretty simple things to be able to do. 
it makes a big difference. You can sit in a chair, close your eyes, and imagine for a minute. Then you can go. Then you can go do whatever you want to do. But training yourself that way is really is really a big thing, especially in today's world. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh was such a great teacher oh, and a Buddhist minister. Yes. Now he passed away recently. Just recently, yeah. Yeah, but he used to call stopping an action. He used mm-hmm. to say it's not a resignation; it's actually very active. Mm-hmm. So you can you can look at stopping as an action. When you stop, you're really doing something really positive. That's really the time that we have for for today because I have to go uh, go beat myself up for a few hours. <laughs> I need to pause to do that. First of all, Bill, thanks so much for coming over and doing. Thanks for this having thing. me. It was great. Yeah. Great to be on. Great to talk to you. Watch Disenchantment on uh, Netflix, the show that Bill's uh, working on currently, and new things coming up. If you want to find out more about Jennifer's amazing work, you go to connectedparenting.com. Connected parenting.com amazing courses podcasts all kinds of skills brain hacks all kinds of things that you can use for yourself and your family self-parenting we don't use that expression Mm -hmm. very much but that is a huge thing to be thinking about in, in today's world check out the show write us a review if you like it find the podcast wherever you get your podcast go to makelightmedia.com makelight one word media.com You can hear everything. You can get notes, whatever you need. Nice to have you along. And we'll be back next week with another show. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari. We'll see you next time. 